Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Normal broadcasting has been discontinued. Coming to you from Portland, Oregon. The sports business capital of North America. Keep your radio tuned to this frequency. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Now, your host. I tell you, I've never seen anything like that guy. Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us this week. In segment three, Jason Kent. He is the VP and the general manager of CBSSports.com. He joined us last year around this time, and he's one of the men chiefly responsible for bringing us March Madness On Demand. It's grown every year for the last few years. More and more people are logging on and watching games on their computer. This year, you can even watch on your iPhone or iPod Touch. We'll talk to Jason Kent about the developing technologies around the NCAA tournament. That's coming up in segment three. In segment four, David Falk. He is a sports agent and the author of the new book, The Bald Truth. David Falk is best known as the agent for Michael Jordan. He also represents former Georgetown Hoyas coach John Thompson, current Duke coach Mike Krzyzewski, also former New York Knick Patrick Ewing. So he's represented some really amazing people, uh, really an agent that revolutionized how athletes are marketed in the world of sports. So it'll be interesting to catch up with David Falk in segment four. A couple of other notes, visit my sports business blog or download the SBR podcast on demand. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. March Madness is here. I want to thank everyone who entered the Sports Business Radio March Madness Bracket Challenge at sportsbusinessradio.com. The winner will receive dinner at Morton's The Steakhouse. Bobby, my producer, and I got to go to some NCAA games here in Portland this week. Great to have the tournament in the Rose City for the first time in 34 years. You know, it was a new experience for me, and I had a blast covering the NCAAs while they were here. So we will have lots of headlines coming up next. And I'll tell you, the NFL Players Association, they have a new executive director, and yours truly called it. On last week's show, I'll tell you more about that, gentlemen. Coming up next in headlines, you're listening to Sports Business Radio. This is Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. I know many of our listeners dream of a job in the sports industry but don't know where to begin. To me, it's an easy call. Go where sports business education got its start, at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. As the first business school in the country to offer undergraduate and graduate programs themed around this multi-billion dollar industry, the Warsaw Center offers a unique blend and strong general business training, sports business curriculum taught by industry experts, and rich out-of-classroom experiences, including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships. With a strong industry and alumni network and a staff dedicated to accelerating your career, the Warsaw Center has a proven track record of placing students in teams, league offices, corporate sponsors, marketing agencies, sports media, and sports shoe and apparel firms. But like any elite team, there's only a few spots on the roster. To learn more, visit sportsbusinessradio.com for a link to the center's website. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center, passion, integrity, and leadership in sports business education. 
Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. It's time for this week's Sports Business Radio headline, sponsored by the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. Visit warsawcenter.com for more information. Headline number one, as I predicted last week on the show, the NFL Players Association has a new executive director, and that man is Demoris Smith. And this is a very important hiring, Bobby. We talked about this. The current collective bargaining agreement expires in 2011, and Gene Upshaw was so important for the Players Association and kept everyone united, and there's been a lot of talk about the Players Association fracturing. And I guess from all reports at the presentations in Maui, um, or not Maui, in Honolulu, Smith had by far the most impressive presentation to the group, and thus he was voted the next NFL Players Association executive director. And he came out and said immediately he wants to sit down with Roger Goodell and, you know, really kind of lay the groundwork now to start the new CBA before, you know, 2011 and before there is any real talk of a possible strike. Well, salary cap, you know, that's something that some people have wanted to talk about. And it's going to be very interesting. We've got owners in the NFL now saying, hey, this economy's really hurt us. We've seen teams lay off people. We've seen the NFL front office lay off people. Uh, it's a very different economy now. And I guess all I can say is this. The fans don't care about any of this. All they want to see is continuation of football. They read in the papers that, you know, the NFL has a multi-billion dollar TV deal. Everyone should be making money on this. And there's really no excuse for a work stoppage. But Demora Smith, make no mistake, he's stepping into a really difficult situation from day one because some people say that the players are not on the same page. Our next headline, it's March Madness time. Bobby and I went to March Madness here in Portland, Oregon. First time that the tournament returned to Portland in 34 years. Got a taste of some really exciting games. And, you know, CBS, they signed a contract in 1999. It's an 11-year, $6 billion deal. And, Bobby, this thing gets bigger and bigger every year. You know, here the games were sold out. And then, you know, we're going to talk in our next segment to Jason Kent with CBSSports.com. March Madness on Demand is growing big time. They're going to do about $30 million in revenues up from 23 last year. So everywhere you look during March Madness, there's some platform where you can watch this thing. You know, it's funny. I had people sitting behind me in my media section. All of them had iPods or had iPhones and were watching the March Madness on demand, looking at other scores, not just the game they were watching in front of them, but actually other games around the country. That's how interested people were to find out, you know, what the scores were and what else was going on. Well, I mean, if you go on to iTunes, and we'll talk about this with Jason coming up next, but uh, there's a new application for the iPhone or for the iPod Touch, and if you have AT&T service, where you can literally watch the games from your mobile device. And, and that's really where everything is going a few years from now. I think everyone's going to be able to watch video, but I think that March Madness on Demand has really done a better job than any other event that we have during the year of capturing video so people can watch online or on their handheld device. So, you know, this is a huge, huge money-making thing for CBS. And you got to give them credit because a lot of networks sign a deal and they just keep it strictly to TV. What CBS has done is they've thought outside the box and they've presented this product now in so many different platforms to make it easier and easier for people to be able to watch the tournament. 
Our next headline, big news for Major League Soccer. Two franchises awarded this week, both in the Pacific Northwest. The first, Vancouver, British Columbia. And part of that ownership group, Phoenix Suns guard Steve Nash, who's a Canadian. And I'm sure he's very excited. His brother plays professional soccer. And the other team, right here in Portland, Oregon, our backyard. So lots of people in this area very excited for soccer. The MLS has now set up a a rivalry for Seattle, who launched this week to 32,000 people for their first game at home. And then you've got Vancouver and Portland. So, Bobby, uh, I think a lot of soccer fans in the Pacific Northwest are very happy. I think it's going to be really interesting to see, though. You know, the league says they may expand by even more teams over the next five years. All the economy is going south. So most people are talking about reducing the MLS is expanding. I'm going to be interested to see how it works out for them. You know, you could almost create your own little northwest division between Vancouver, Seattle, and Portland. And, you know, it's funny. Seattle opened up their their you know season this year, and they won their first game. So congrats to them. But I find it very interesting. In a down economy, how this, you know— this t- franchise and the whole way the MLS works is they're actually expanding. We would think it'd be the opposite, but really, you know, they're pumping money into stuff and they're getting stadiums built. Well, the one reason that the MLS has been successful to date is besides David Beckham, we don't see these owners throwing millions of dollars at the players. Now, some people would say, well, if they went over and got some Premier League players and threw them millions of dollars, it would give them more credibility. I guess I would argue and say, Has David Beckham really made that big of a difference since he came over? I don't think he has. I know he gave them some short-term buzz, but over the long term, I don't know that he's made that big of a difference. The owners are responsible. They run their businesses responsibly. They don't throw money at players uh, frivolously like you see in so many other sports. And to date, the franchise values have increased dramatically. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, these Teams that are getting in later now, Portland and Vancouver, will their franchise values increase as dramatically as the people who got in 10 years ago? All right, coming up next, Jason Kent. He's with CBSSports.com. He's a VP and the general manager. He's the big dog, and he's one of the men chiefly responsible for an emerging technology, March Madness On Demand. Gives us the ability to watch March Madness on our cell phones and Online. We'll talk to Jason. That's coming up next. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. My guest is Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Let's go back to the year 2000, the year before you bought the Mavericks. They were 40 and 42. Fan interest was pretty lukewarm. When you bought this team, what did you see in this team? What was the potential that you saw to get them to where they are today? Probably none. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. I think the reason why we have a BCS-type system in Division 1A and elsewhere we have playoffs is that the schools in Division 1A feel that the regular season is the most important aspect of football. Read the Sports Business blog and listen to SBR On Demand at SportsBusinessRadio.com. See, I think that's the big thing. Sports Business Radio, Saturday. <laughs> Or online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Bringing you 
up to speed on the latest breakthroughs in the world of sports. Let's enter the Technology Lab. My guest is Jason Kent. He is the senior VP and GM of CBSSports.com. He joined us on last year's show around this time of year. Jason, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to have you on to talk about the further growth of NCAA March Madness On Demand. Uh, This is something that just grows and grows every year as the Internet grows and bandwidth grows. But how many people do you expect are going to tune in online and watch the tournament this year? We had around 5 million unique users last year, 5 million fans watch. Um, We expect uh, the best projections, probably around 50% growth year over year, so maybe around 7 to 8 million people. Wow. The sky's the limit. And I know from trying to get on today, uh, it looks like the VIP signups are already booked. So uh, what would my wait time be if I'm not a VIP to get in to watch the tournament online? Actually, this year we, we eliminated the waiting room. So if all goes well, you should be able to jump right in and you won't have any wait time whatsoever. Wow. Now, you know, I'm not an expert with bandwidth and things like that, but what have you guys done technologically to support the number of people that are visiting your site and wanting to watch video? We added, we've added the infrastructure significantly in the last two years. And last year in particular, we, we, we ramped up and, and we left the waiting room in place just to make sure everybody had a rock-solid experience. But uh, everything went well, and, and we decided at the end of last year's tournament that we were ready for, for dropping the waiting room. And we, we went ahead and increased the bandwidth even more just to, to make sure we were pretty solid. Now, last year, the first time uh, you let people watch all 63 games from the first round all the way to the championship, is that going to be the case again this year? Yep, we'll be doing the same thing. Uh, every game from wherever you want, as long as you've got a, uh, you know, as long as you have a web browser and, and internet access. One of the things I've been really impressed with, you know, we talk on our show so much about the depressed economy, which is no secret to anyone. But even in this depressed economy, your advertising is up for March Madness on demand. Maybe you can talk about that growth a little bit in a, in a depressed economy. Yeah, I mean, we're certainly seeing what the rest of the media industry has seen. Uh, this, this is really a, a highlight and very unique. The, you know, what's unique about, about the NCAA tournament is, is the live video aspect of what we do online. Video is still, still the, the, the fastest growing category that, out there on the web. And and that combined with live video and, and really premium content, it's not you know it's not just user generated video. It's the NCAA tournament. It's CBS Sports, so it really is unique and stands out. It's also it's also a big audience. Um, it's hard to find predictable large audiences on the web, and, and this we have a, a pretty good idea of, of the number of users that will be hitting our hitting our site starting with the, the first games on Thursday. You know, I got to be honest with you. This is the only event all year long that I watch online, and I make a point to watch some of it online. Um, why are we not seeing growth with other sports or events online? Are we just not there technologically, or you guys are so far in front of everyone else? Why are we need, not seeing that growth other other places? Yeah, one, we, we, we do we do believe that we're innovating. We like to, to think we're innovating faster than anyone else, and and uh, and we want to bring the content out to the, the users regardless of platform and make it easy to watch. So. So we got the user's best interest in mind, but you know also the NCAA tournament's unique in that the rights, the rights that were um, that were licensed by CBS back well over 11 years ago in '99 were were done in a in a fashion that that all the rights were bundled together. So so we have the ability to to be more aggressive regardless of platform than some of the other uh, the other events that are more complex. And then uh, you know the NCAA tournament also is is really unique 
in that there's the Thursday and Friday um, action, and, and and it comes at a time in the day when a lot of people don't have TVs nearby. So it's really the perfect event for for the web. And, and a lot of the other major sports events are you know on prime time on weekends, and people have TVs nearby. My guest is Jason Kent. He is the senior VP and GM for CBSSports.com. Jason, something I'm very excited about. I've got an iPhone, so I see that there's the March Madness on-demand application for the iPhone. I've already downloaded it to my iPhone, and I'm going to be at the Portland site here, so I'm going to be using my uh, iPhone in a Wi-Fi hotspot to watch video on my phone, which I think is just remarkable. Excellent. That's exactly what we were hoping for. Yeah, we've obviously the iPhone is a, is a hot device, and, and really the mobile devices in general um, you know, are, are growing really well and, and we want to continue to let people watch the tournament regardless of, of location and, and we recognize that not everyone's going to have a PC nearby and certainly might not have a TV nearby so the iPhone is, is the perfect perfect app to deliver to deliver live video um, along with we've got a, a broader deal with, with AT&T Mobile, Mobile TV where you can watch all the games um, over the surface. The other thing I like too is that you have uh, updated brackets on there and results. Here's one suggestion I have for you for next year, and you may tell me you've already got this done. What I what I'd like to be able to do is get onto my iPhone, look at the bracket, and then pull up my bracket on CBSSports.com and see how am I doing and how you know how's my bracket doing compared to the the real bracket. That would be kind of fun to be able to do. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, if you can't do that this year, then certainly we'll be able to do it next year. So we've got, uh, I think, 3.8, 3.8 million people last year doing their brackets on, on CBSSports.com, so we want to make sure they're actually able to, to track how they're doing regardless of location. Now, is this an exclusive application for only the iPhone and the iPod Touch? No, we also, uh, we're also also streaming all 63 games over, over AT&T Mobile and Mobile TV. So, uh, you know, that's just an, this is just an extension. Well, Jason, this is fantastic stuff. Uh, you guys continue to grow this thing every single year. Keep up the good work, and I appreciate you taking the time this week on Sports Business Radio. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. Thank you very much. You're Take listening care. to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm looking for a place to have dinner with family, friends, or business associates, there's only one restaurant on my list. Morton's The Steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. In its 28th year in business, Morton serves only the finest quality foods, featuring USDA prime-age beef, fresh seafood, hand-picked produce, and decadent desserts prepared to perfection. Not to mention the award-winning wine list. When my destination is Morton's, the best is always on the menu. And they treat me like a VIP during every visit, whether in the dining room or the private boardrooms. With almost 75 restaurants conveniently located around the world, Morton's is the gold standard when it comes to steakhouses. To find the Morton's nearest you or to make a reservation, go online to mortons.com. Morton's, the best steak anywhere and the official steakhouse of Sports Business Radio. One-on-one with those making the big-time decisions that impact your sport. This is Sports Sense on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio. My guest is Super Sports Agent David Falk. He's represented more number one picks in the NBA draft than any other agent. He's best known as the visionary who teamed with Michael Jordan to revolutionize the way athletes are marketed. In addition to representing Jordan, Falk's client list also includes Patrick Ewing, James Worthy, 
former Georgetown basketball coach John Thompson and current Duke basketball coach Mike Krzyzewski. Falk recently donated $5 million to his alma mater, Syracuse University, to kickstart the school's sports management program. He has a new book out called The Bold Truth, Secrets of Success from the Locker Room to the Boardroom, which is a business book that relates his experiences in the sports business world into general business lessons. David, thank you for joining us this week on Sports Business Radio. My pleasure. So I've enjoyed reading your book, The Bold Truth, and in your book you discuss your path to becoming the success you are today. Many people know you as the man who's made millions representing the likes of Michael Jordan and Patrick Ewing, but people may not realize that you started off at the bottom as an unpaid intern. What led you to want to become a sports agent so badly that you were willing to start off as an unpaid intern? Well, I was one of those, I guess, rare people that knew at an early age what I wanted to do. I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do it, but I really, uh, I always wanted to be a lawyer, uh, and I always had a very um, strong love for sports. And when I was in college at Syracuse, uh, I got very close to a number of the basketball players, and uh, one of them was one of my really close friends, Greg Coles. Uh, he was like the sixth leading scorer in the country in our class, and by the time I became a senior, uh, and he was coming out and got drafted. I realized I didn't have a clue what I have to do to do the business. So I went to law school and, and um, uh, I started meeting people and networking uh, really after my first year. And so when the opportunity came along um, uh, at, at ProServe to work with Donald Dell, um, they weren't hiring people with my background and, and uh, I just offered to work for free. I didn't start at the bottom. I probably started below the bottom. <laughs> you know, it's funny you talk about they weren't hiring people with my background. It's so hard for a lot of people to get a job today in sports because you have to have experience to get that job, right? Well, absolutely. The business has changed so dramatically. When I started, uh, it was maybe the first decade, if you will, of of, um, of, of sports being a business, of, of being a manager. Mark McCormick really invented the business in the late 60s. And, um, you know, it, when I started off, I was more of a generalist. I did, I did a little bit of everything. I negotiated contracts. I did marketing deals. I wrote contracts. I did research. And today, you know, to, to get a job, you really have to be a specialist in an area. You have to be in marketing or sales or IT or, you know, event, event management. It's really, you could, I would never hire someone with my background because the business becomes so much more specialized. Interesting. Uh, one of the things I noted about you when you're doing, when I was doing the research for this interview, you donated five million dollars to your alma mater, Syracuse, to kickstart the school sports management program. What led you to make this major contribution? I mean, that's a big contribution. Well, as I mentioned in my book, my mother was a teacher, Pearl Falk, and she was, you know, the the most important um, influence in my life. And um, I think I've always had a little bit of a teaching instinct in me, and I've, you know, I've done guest lecturing quite a bit. And, uh, you know, the chancellor, Nancy Cantor, had approached me and thought that it um, would be a great way to have a program that was sort of experiential, where you wouldn't just be teaching about academics, but you could have people, you know, I could bring in people from the field that could give, you know, a hands-on uh, view to the students of what the industry is. And we've assembled a board, a very, very uh, successful board. Rick Burton, who used to be the head of the program at the University of Oregon, is on my board, and Brandon Steiner, who owns the collectibles business on the board. I have Art Monk, who's a Hall of Fame football client on, on our board. And there's some tremendous people on the board that um, that can lend the students um, you know, a really practical view of, of, wh- of where the business is and what it takes to get in. And I absolutely love, you know, I absolutely love it. I had, a, you know, I met my wife at Syracuse. My younger daughter goes to Syracuse. So it's, uh, well, I've never represented a player from Syracuse, which is sort of an irony. I have a huh. very strong fondness 
you know, from my experience at the school, and it's uh, and it's been a great reward for me to spend time with the students. You're best known as the person behind Michael Jordan's off-the-court successes. Uh, share with us the story about how you and Michael Jordan met and how he became a client of yours, if you would. Well, what happened was, um, you know, the firm I worked for was called ProServe, and the two senior people, Donald Dell and Frank Regal, had had a long-term relationship with, with Coach Smith. Frank actually went to the University of North Carolina as a Moorhead scholar. And uh, before I joined the firm, they had represented uh, early players like George Carls, the coach of Denver now, and Dennis Wysick and Bobby Jones. And uh, Dean would screen all the agents. And uh, when Michael came out in 1984 with Sam Perkins, uh, there had been actually six groups during his tenure that had represented Carolina players. He invited them all in, gave them each an hour. Um, and, you know, uh, I wouldn't say that I was the, the – um, you know, the, the deal breaker in that kind of a thing. I think, you know, the relationship between Dean and, and Donald Dell was very important. But once Michael became a client, I was running basketball at the time, and we got very close. And, uh, you know, he had known of my relationship with, you know, earlier clients like Phil Ford and James Worthy and Dudley Bradley and Michael Corrin, who I'd spent, you know, a lot of my time with. And so he actually knew quite a bit about our operation. It wasn't like we came in and, and dazzled him. I think he was just comfortable that we'd, you know, done a really good job you know, managing the predecessors at Carolina. One of the things I love about your book is the insight that you share, the bold truth by David Falk. It's in bookstores now. Uh, the part of your book that I just found fascinating was where you talked about Michael Jordan's shoe deals, and you talked about how he was really an Adidas guy, and Nike was uh, a distant third behind Adidas and Converse to the point where you even had to plead with his parents to get him on a plane to come out to Nike's presentation. Now, you know, Michael Jordan and Nike are synonymous. Maybe you can talk a little bit to our listeners about how that all came together. And really, I believe that that relationship with Nike, because they were willing to spend so much money on advertising and make Michael Jordan bigger than life, I think that was the foundation for his other deals. No question. I think the Nike deal jump-started his market, no, no pun intended, you know, jump-started his marketing success. But you know, it's hard for young people today to understand what the world looked like in 1984. In 1984, you know, the stars in the NBA were, were obviously Magic and, and Bird, um, Dr. J. None of those players had their own shoes. Um, you know, they all they all were just simply endorsers, you know, for, for other companies. And, um, you know, I had worked with a lot of tennis players. I worked with Arthur Ashe and Stan Smith. Uh, and tennis players and golfers routinely had their own products. They had their own tennis rackets, golf clubs, shoes, clothes. And so when, uh, two years before Michael came out, you know, I had represented James Worthy, and I had negotiated the largest shoe deal in the history of the NBA for, for James when he was a rookie uh, with New Balance. He was the only player they had. And so there had been an evolution in the business. Um, and so when Michael finally came out in 84, uh, and I went to see him at the Olympics and realized that he was a man among boys at the Olympics in Los Angeles in, in 1984. He was, you know, amongst, you know, Patrick Ewing and, you know, Chris Mullen, just a, Sam Perkins, a whole host of great players. He just, on and international stars, he just stood out. He was like it was like a pro player play against high school kids. And while no one knew how great he'd be as a player, it was obvious that he was going to be a really exciting player. And so when we went to the shoe companies for Michael, I told them all, "We're not going to make offers. You know, we want to know what can you do to promote to promote this man." Um, and most of them thought I was crazy, and they said, well, "Dave, what are you going to promote him? We're going to just sign him. You know, we're going to sign him and give him free product, and um, you know, he'll join our staff." In fact, Converse, when we had our meeting with Converse, 
which is ironically owned by Nike now, um, you know, they said we have 66 executives at the company, six foot six and over, <laughs> and we're you know we're going to treat you just like all the other you know great players we have. And Michael's father, James, had been to several of the meetings. Said, uh, "Well, gosh, don't you guys have any new creative ideas?" And they looked at him like, "Like, what are you kidding me? Like, why do we need to be creative? This is not really complicated. You just sign the deal and and lace up the shoes." And so, Nike was at a point where they really weren't not established in basketball. They were in basketball, but they weren't really a, a major factor like they are today. Uh, and I had had an outstanding relationship with Phil and Rob Strasser in the early days when the company was very small and entrepreneurial. I'm a, a great admirer of Phil's. And, um, you know, we basically brought them Jordan because I thought it was the best fit. You know, I thought that they needed him the most. They would be the most hungry. They'd be the most entrepreneurial. They'd be the most creative and, and you know, all those. And they, and they were all of those things and more. You know, Doing my research again, I see that Michael Jordan sells more basketball shoes today, and he hasn't played since 2003, than Kobe Bryant or LeBron James. What gives Michael Jordan that it? You know, I've had Mark Steinberg, Tiger Woods' agent, on this show, and we talked about how some guys just have the it factor. What is it that Michael Jordan has that makes him not only a champion, but an athlete who can pitch product? Well, I think think he's genuine. I think when Michael came into the NBA in 1984, Unlike all the young players coming today, he wasn't trying to be the next somebody else. He was just trying to find his own niche, and he and uh, you know and, and everything he did, and every commercial and every endorsement, he just basically was Michael Jordan. He wasn't trying to be James Bond. He wasn't trying to be a rapper. He wasn't trying to be a movie star. He was just trying to be himself. And I think that that quality really showed through, you know, for years. I, you know, I think Kobe is a great player. LeBron's a great player. I mean, to say they don't sell as much, I mean. I think combined, they, they, I'm not sure they sell 10% of what he sells. Hmm. Um, you know, I think I think I think they'll never be another Michael Jordan. It's not to say there won't be a player who's better, uh, you know, could jump higher or whatever. But I think he came along at a time when being an icon in basketball was unimaginable. You know, it was a team sport. It was rivalries between Boston, L.A., New York, and Detroit. And no one could conceive that an individual player could transcend the boundaries of his team, no less the boundaries of a sport. So today, everyone, all the companies, the shoe companies, the Gatorades, everyone's trying to find the next Michael. And I think that the public, the kids, see that, and they, it's sort of manufactured. It's not, it's not real. Uh, it's fun, but it's not, it's not real. The other thing which is interesting, Brian, is that you know, the first game plan for Michael, which I developed 25 years ago, was to put him with a group of all-American companies on the heels of his success at the Olympics. So we first, other than Nike, we chose Coca-Cola, McDonald's, and, um, and Chevrolet. And 25 years later, it's now sort of like guys come out of school and they want to know Gatorade or vitamin water, you know, Pepsi or Coke, Burger King or McDonald's. You know, and, and no one's really changed the blueprint. And you know, I'm looking for someone to come along and change the blueprint because it needs to be changed. I mean, 25 years have gone by. The world has changed dramatically in 25 years, and I think it's time to have a new, fresh approach, you know, to marketing. And I'm, I'm you know, I I have this discussion from time to time with Maverick Carter, who's LeBron's you know, representative, who I really like. Right. And I say, you know, Maverick, you have to take a young, a great star like LeBron and raise the bar. You know, take it from what it's been and take it to the next level for the next generation. So how would you do that? I mean, in, in just a few minutes, how would you do that? Oh, I, 
you know, I'm not sure. I've, I've never really spent, you know, hours of time because I've never had a player, you know, in that position in the last five or six years. But, um, you know, I think I do the same thing I try to do with Michael. I think I try to take scrap whatever is existing and take a totally fresh look at it and, you know, try to find things that fit the personalities of, you know, of a particular player, whether it was Kobe or LeBron or Dwayne Wade or Carmelo, whoever it happens to be. And, um, you know, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I would spend hours coming up with a plan to do that. My guest is longtime sports agent David Falk. He is the author of a new book called The Bold Truth, Secrets of Success from the Locker Room to the Boardroom. It is a fantastic book that you absolutely have to go out and read. You know, I thought my favorite chapter in the whole book was chapter four. It's entitled See the Whole Court. And the reason I enjoyed this chapter so much was because the insight you shared in the negotiations and things like that with your clients. But you talk, you have one phrase that just hit me, and it says, don't just see what is happening anticipate what's happening. We talk about that in the sports world so much, how the game slows down for the great players and they can see plays before they happen. But we don't really talk about it that much in the business world, and it makes total sense. You saw kind of the game before it was happening 25, 30 years ago with Michael Jordan. And as you just said, you know, now who's going to take that to the next level? Well, you know, I think, you know, I'm a lawyer, and lawyers spend a lot of time, Brian, looking at precedents, things that happened in the past, sometimes hundreds of years ago, as a guideline to, to how decisions are made. But in business, you know, when you spend a lot of time looking in your rearview mirror, you know, you, you're going to get into an accident. you got you got to be looking in front of you and trying to understand, like, I mean, a great race car driver has got to see, you know, hundreds of yards ahead of him and, and decide when he's going to take the turn. And I think when you're managing people, You've got to get a sense of where, you know, where the trends are going, not where they've been, because they change so quickly. I mean, I'll give you a great story. You know, when when we came out with the first Air Jordans in 1985, they were black and red. People said they were really ugly, but they sold 130 million dollars worth of shoes, which is more than every other shoe company that did basketball. They outsold, you know, Converse and Adidas. It was unbelievable. So every company for year two came out with a black and red shoe. And we sat down with you know with Tinker Hatfield, the designers at Nike, and we decided we sort of knew that was going to happen. And we came up with an all-white shoe for year two. So when everyone said, "Hey, we know it's cool. Here's a black and red shoe," we were saying, "Hey, that's not cool anymore. What's cool now is white." And, and I think that, you know, I think, you know, particularly in fashion, but business trends change so quickly. You know, in the age of technology, you know, things are changing so quickly. That if you can't, you know, sort of what Bill Gates wrote when he wrote the book, The Road Ahead, if you can't anticipate where it's going, you, you're going to get left behind. We've got just a few minutes left. I want to talk about the current NBA landscape. Owners are claiming that the NBA financial model is broken. We seem to be setting up for a major showdown following the 2010-2011 season when the current collective bargaining agreement expires. Long-term guaranteed contracts really seem to be killing owners. So I look at just this NBA season alone, David, and I see that Stephon Marbury, Joe Smith, Drew Gooden, they're all guys that have been bought out of their contracts. When the next collective bargaining agreement expires following the 2010-2011 season, what changes need to be made for the long-term financial health of the NBA? Well, first of all, I don't think, I don't think Brian, that it's broken. I, mean, I think David Stern you know, is, is the greatest commissioner in the history of professional I agree. sports. And I think, I think that... If I can analogize to our current economic situation, if three years ago someone would have said, hey, hedge funds are sort of unregulated, there are problems, they're not transparent, we're not really sure you know, what you're investing in, that's where we are today. We know that there are cracks in the system. 
there are things that aren't working the way that they were intended to work. Um, I think one of them, for example, is the mid-level exception, which allows a team that's over the cap to spend about 30 to $35 million to sign a player. Um, I think that I think it's getting a lot of teams in trouble because they're signing very, very average players, as you're suggesting, for long-term guaranteed contracts. It's not that guaranteed contracts are bad. You could give a player like Kobe Bryant or LeBron James you know, a 20-year contract. Those guys are so competitive and they're so um, genetically programmed to compete that you could pay them a dollar or a billion and they do everything the same. But very few players have that have that ability. And so if you're an owner of a business and you have employees, you can't say that Kobe Bryant or LeBron James or Dwayne Wade or, you know, Patrick Ewing, those are my average typical player. Those are the atypical players. And I think you've got to look at the system. So I think mid-level exception is one problem. A second issue, which I've been on the warpath over for 10 years, is the age limitation. Because, you know, we're about to enter March Madness. It's the single greatest advertisement for the NBA in the last 30 years, starting with the Magic Bird Classic in, in 1979. It's the 30th anniversary. And um, it's free. It costs the NBA zero. And by allowing the players to bypass to bypass that system, it means that the players coming into the league are not nearly as well-known to the average fan. And they may be well-known to the hardcore fan and to the people that do fantasy basketball, but to the average fan, they're really not as well-known as they were. 20 years ago when everyone knew who Michael Jordan and Patrick Ewing and Grant Hill and you know that Danny Manning, that whole generation of players that, that started the NCAA tournament. So I think we need to have a rule like they have in football where it's three years. Um, I think that will, in the long term, make the players a lot more money because it will improve the game. Um, so I don't think that the league is broken. I think it needs to be tweaked. My hope is that everyone understands that what the stakes are, and that we're not going to go through another boneheaded lockout like we went into in, in uh, you know ten years ago, which which nobody wins. The players lost a lot of money, the league lost a lot of momentum, and I think that the head of the union, Billy Hunter, and David got to sit down and recognize, hey, we're partners. You know, we are the stewards of the game. We need to come up with a system that improves what we have now. It's not broken, but it's um, but but there are issues that need to be addressed before they become problems. I've had Commissioner Stern on this show several times, and I asked him if you could move to a model more like the NFL where signing bonuses are guaranteed but the contracts aren't guaranteed, would you be in favor of such a move? And he said, absolutely, but I don't think the players and the Players Association would ever go for that. Do you think that we may at least see uh, something happen where the contracts are shorter guaranteed contracts than they are now? I mean, we've got, we went from seven and six to what, six and five now? Exactly. I mean, again, I think, it, you know, you can't look at the thing in the broad brush, Brian. You know, if you're the Lakers, you'd never want to have a situation where you shorten the contract because you could risk losing Kobe Bryant. I mean, you know, for the stars, you, you want to have longer contracts. I mean, you could want to sign those guys up as long as you can because you don't want to lose them. I mean, if Cleveland right now could offer LeBron James 10 years and everyone else could offer him five years, they would because, you know, that's all the rumors that he may go to New York or New Jersey or whatever. I mean, he's the most—he's the foundation of the team. And so when you have players of that ilk, you don't want to lose them. Now, I think they will become shorter for the average players. And in certain cases, it's good. If you're a great player, you're always going to get paid. You know, and, and the, the issue really is, is this, the injury security. I mean, if you had injury security, um, you know, great players will always get paid. Look at what LeBron and, you know, LeBron signed a shorter contract the last time. 
you know, because he wanted to make sure he came up again before the collective bar agreement. So he comes up next summer. Now, he could have signed up seven-year deal, but he was confident in his own ability, and he'll probably make a lot more money. Right. Now, I agree with you that it would be great if there was some system in place that could measure, here's a superstar versus your average player, and the superstars are able to be signed for, you know, 10 years over five years for everyone else. But I just See, but don't that's know. That's what football does. See, football takes the two best players on the team and, and gives them designations as franchise players and transitional players, and those guys are guaranteed to be in the top, you know, three or five, whatever the rule is, at their positions. They recognize there's a difference between Tom Brady and, and some lineman who's the backup lineman. You can't treat all players with a broad brush, and that's one of the problems the union has when you're representing 400 players is that there's a real difference in sports between Kobe Bryant and, and Vulovich. They both play the same game and they wear the same uniform, but you know, as I like to say, you know, you have LeBron James and you have Jerome James. The fact that they both named James about the right. only thing they have in common, <laughs> you know, and it's a mistake. It's a it's a terrible mistake to the quality of the game to treat the people on the on an identical basis. All right, last question for you. You talk about negotiations in your book in great detail. You've negotiated with other NBA GMs, shoe executives. Uh, you've talked to college coaches about trying to convince them to let you recruit the player to sign them as a client. Who's the toughest person that you've ever negotiated with? You know, it's a real, almost an impossible question to answer. I mean, people are tough for different reasons. People are tough because they're smart, like a Jerry Reinsdorf. I think I think in basketball, one of the toughest guys was a, was a gentleman who used to own the San Antonio Spurs named Angelo DeRosas. He was in a very small market, very, very bright guy. And he came up with a really ingenious system where he would give all the players, whether they were stars like Gervin, bonuses based on how many games the team won. He took away individual incentives and said, look, if we're successful, we're all going to make more money. Um, and I think that was really a, really a bright idea. There are people that are tough because they're stubborn. You know, uh, I think there are people that, you know, that make mistakes and, and, and lose players. Um, and, and I think they're all tough in different ways. But at the end of the day, what's great about the NBA is that it's so small. There's only 30 teams and 450 players. You have to deal with the same people over and over again. And the point I try to make in the book is that it's not in the long term. You don't win anything by being tough. You may, you may win a battle you know, here and there, but you, know, you want to win the championship. And to win the championship, no team wins 82 games. You've got to lose a few along the way. You've got to win the key ones. And that's the same thing in negotiations. You know, it, doesn't, it doesn't pay to be tough. You want, you want to be effective. Well, David Falk, he is the author of The Bold Truth, Secrets of Success from the Locker Room to the Boardroom. It's in bookstores now or on Amazon.com. Tremendous book. Check it out. David, I've had this show on the air for five years. I've wanted to have you on for five years, so I'm glad that we finally got to connect. Well, I really enjoy it. Let's, let's not wait another five years before we do it again. That sounds great. Thank you very much for your time this week. My pleasure. Yes, appearing during our Sports Sense segment, we'll be treated to the gold standard of all steakhouses, Morton's the Steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. For the Morton's nearest you, go online to mortons.com. You're listening to Sports. Is this radio? We'll be right back. This is 
Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. We live in an age where everything is on the record. What we say anywhere, whether it's in an elevator, in an email, or during a conversation with a reporter, is now being broadcast instantaneously on YouTube, in a blog, or through the mass media. It's easier than ever to spot someone who has been traditionally media trained and is just giving you that same old boring PR speak. I want to help you navigate the tricky media landscape. When I'm not hosting Sports Business Radio, I team with former Nike PR director Lee Weinstein to form Evergreen Media Training. Evergreen Media Training assists individuals and groups by offering unique preparation and training catered to your specific needs. From explaining today's media environment to providing you with post-training, monitoring, and feedback, we'll guide you every step of the way. With nearly 40 years of combined experience working with some of the biggest names in the sports industry, we'll help you communicate your messages honestly, thoughtfully, and from the heart. For an overview and a list of services, visit evergreenmediatraining.com or email me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. We are back for our final segment on this edition of Sports Business Radio. In Chicago, there are reports that Chicago City Council this week approved plans for Wrigley Field concerts this summer. The council approved three concerts, one more than in previous years, and the concerts will be two concerts by Elton John and Billy Joel. I got to say I've seen them together many, many times. So I'd love to see them in Wrigley. And then Rascal Flatts, Bobby's favorite, will be the other concert. So Wrigley Field is becoming more and more of a a concert venue. They're looking to do some things to create revenues other than just host Chicago Cubs games. All right, it's been a great show this week. want to thank our guests, David Falk, Jason Kent from CBSSports.com, our show staff, Nathan Roach, Bobby Corser, Josh Blank, Darren Peck. Ron Barr, James Harris, and Doug Zanger. Our sponsors, Morton's The Steakhouse. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. ProTrade.com. Evergreen Media Training. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com and click on the podcast page. You can also find us on iTunes. If you go to sportsbusinessradio.com, we have a Facebook page. You can become our Facebook friend. We're big into social media now. Also, go to sportsbusinessradio.com, go to my blog, and if you entered our contest, or even if you didn't, you can follow all of us here at Sports Business Radio and everyone else who entered the contest and see how we do in our March Madness Bracket Challenge. I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week. We'll see you next week on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Robert Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Suns. When people come to a Suns game, what kind of an experience do you want it to be for them? We want them to be entertained from the time they walk in to the time they leave. The co-owner of the Sacramento Kings, Gavin Malouf. Gavin, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Brian. How are you? Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. Sports Business Radio. That's why you're a smart business person. (laughs) Or at sportsbusinessradio.com.